the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Nation is brought to you by Sure. Because every voice matters. Welcome to the most recent installment of the Women in AV podcast. Thank you, um, Jennifer, for co-hosting with me. I know that this is only our second one, um, but I wanted to show my appreciation and gratitude towards you. And um, we have a couple of guests today. I'm going to go ahead and introduce one of them, Bren Walker from Kirkguard. Welcome, Bren. Thank you. Hi. I'll go ahead and introduce the other one. And thank you, Erica. I would like to return that gratitude. But uh, yeah, so we've got with us Kat Wheeler. She's an author. <laughs> I've got her book here today because I'm a little bit of a super fan. So she wrote two. This is the first one. There's no cloud. And then there's cloud judgment. And she was one of my favorite book club guests we've ever had. So I'm happy to have her back here again today. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Erica, you want to start us off? Sure. I, I actually want to go in with an easier topic that I think is most interesting to me. Um, for all of our guests and you know how how did you get into AV? <laughs> wow sure how did I get into AV? Well you know I'll start by saying that my first AV job was that I used to set up the AV systems at the Hillel on Harvard's campus which was you know sort of a challenging choice for a sophomore um, because I had to be at the Hillel every <laughs> Saturday morning by 6.30 in the morning. I definitely went in hot a couple of times, you know, probably, <laughs> probably smelled like a little bit of tequila or something. But it, what it taught me, though, was that how much people rely on systems for communication. And it's, you know, it's never more evident than with the orthodox um, folks because they couldn't touch any power, right? So mm -hmm. they needed me to turn off the alarm, to turn on lights, to do anything. And and it was it was it was illuminating for me in terms of just how important the a system is for everyone to understand each other. And whether that's whether you're speaking or singing or whatever, playing an instrument, like our tools are critical to that. Now, after I graduated college, I spent a decade working in the music industry, um, live shows, making records for, you know, labels like Virgin and A&M. And then I spent a decade in Silicon Valley working in digital music and doing uh, software and apps. Cool. And one day I just wrote Larry Kierkegaard, who was the founder of the firm, I was taking a hiatus in 2008 and I said, I'm curious about what you do. Can I come talk to you about acoustics? And then, you know, over a sort of four year relationship of just talking, I started working with the firm and then realized, oh, there's that AV thing going back to like my origins of setting up those systems in the Hillel <laughs> and being involved with recording or even going as far back as like being eight years old and making my own little cassettes and cutting and slicing tape and everything, you know? 
Um, so when I got to Kierkegaard, I was just, it was right at that time, when I started working in AV there, it was right at that time where people were having that conversation about AV or mm -hmm. IT, AV or IT, and then it became a non-conversation yeah. because AV is networked now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, we Absolutely. can stop talking about that. <laughs> um, but it gave me an opening because I came from I came from software. I was a coder and I knew live events, um, which worked well for a firm that does primarily performing arts. Um, but I understand how to network things. Uh, and I just married sort of the things together about what I had learned so far in my career. And I could not have predicted that I would be here because there was no course of study that I was on that would lead me to this place, right? It was just a convergence of music and tech and meeting the right person and seeing an opening where I could bring all those things together. So, and I've been mm -hmm. at the firm for 10 years and leading the AV group um, for four. That's fascinating. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's like a great that was a story. lot in a little capsule. There. It's a great origin story. I love it. And it mm -hmm. reminds me actually of Catherine's because hers is, of course, on the back of the book. Told you, super fan. Um, but it's when you're talking about being an eight-year-old and splicing the cassettes and everything. Catherine was taking computers apart. So do you want to talk? <laughs> you want to talk about <laughs> getting into trouble as a little kid? <laughs> sure. I mean, I think I think our stories are a little bit similar, but couldn't also be more far apart. But the themes are kind of similar, just like stumbling your way into it, no course of study. Um, I grew up in Kentucky and I was going to college and I was uh, attending bar. And if you guys don't know, in Kentucky, bars are open till four o'clock in the morning. So getting up for class turned out to be quite the challenge. And at some point I figured I just have to do something else, anything else to kind of like get through this process. And I ended up being a receptionist at an AV integrator in Kentucky before I knew anything about the industry. Um, but I loved it and I loved the technology and the people and I got to be really good friends with one of our reps and he ended up giving me a job and that's how I you know, stumbled into sales. And I've never worked in another industry, which I think is interesting because to your point, Brent, like there is no path for this. There's not really a course of study. There's no easy way to land into it. So it's, it's typically a common thread in all of us that we just kind of wound up here um, and never leave. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, that there's no direct career path to get yourself in here. And every one, I, I don't know if it's every woman's story or every person's story in AV, but we all just kind of fall into it. I, I don't know that we've actually talked about you and I, Jen, how we got into it. No. Jen, do you want to you wanna mention how you, um, yeah. you stumbled upon it? My, yeah, mine's a family <laughs> industry. Uh, I mean, not family industry. Yeah, I my entire family is the industry. It is a is a family industry <laughs> in a weird way. I feel like we're all in it for so long, all the time. No one ever leaves. We all know each other. But no, my family started a AV rep firm, and um, my brother likes to say he dragged me kicking and screaming into it, but I, that's not true. I really, really love this industry, and yeah, I never wanted to leave. Found myself involved in sales, and there you go, Erica. So you knew it, it existed, though. Is like yes, I'd known it existed for a very, a very, very long time because I would help um, with the invoices. My mom had to do was doing all the bookkeeping, and I would see all the invoices and all the samples of all the products that were coming through. And so I was a little kid, and it was a lot different back then. I'll say that mm -hmm. when I was 
10 years old, the AV industry has come a very far away. Yeah. Well, I was always a little bit more into technology growing up and like I would take apart like CD players and stuff like that. Um, cause cassettes, I was on that cusp of like cassette and CD. <laughs> <laughs> um, but eventually when I was in high school, uh, this might be a throwback, but I worked at, at media play, uh, which was owned by Suncoast music and, uh, it ended up going out of business. So like half the staff went to Best Buy and, um, <laughs> so at Best Buy, I got cross-trained in like multiple departments. And then I ended up being a personal shopping assistant, which just means like one person could come in and shop with you in multiple departments because you know how everything works together or if you need, you know, help here and help there. And, you know, so you don't have to like bounce around and you have this shared knowledge as you're shopping. So fast forward, I went to school for graphic design and um, I ended up starting my own graphic design and virtual assistance firm. And um, digital projection at the time was hiring a, uh, a temporary assistant for a rep trip to Costa Rica. So I'm Cuban. I speak Spanish. And it was sort of in line with the stuff that I was doing at that time. And I didn't get that job. However, um, Mike Levy, who was the president at the time, came back to me and said, you know, I, I think you'd be really good at that, but I think you'd be really great at this other thing. And that was an applications engineering for them. So that is how mm. the projector works in the whole system and building out, um, you know, making sure control commands, finding choke points and stuff like that. And so I ended up saying, okay, sure, I'll try that. And then I did geometry for a living for a bit, you know, with flight paths, which is hilarious because I failed geometry twice in high school. So... <laughs> <laughs> did you get your own trip to Costa Rica ever? Or? I did. I, I went on the trip. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's funny how geometry makes sense when it's practically applicable. When it's practical. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But when you're in the moment and you go, when am I ever going to use this? And even the teacher is like, well. Plus B squared <laughs> equals C squared. Okay. Yeah. So um, I do want to sort of transition this conversation a little bit into, um, I mean, I was pretty young when I came into the industry and everybody I worked with was so much older. And I think this brings up a, a good conversation about generational diversity and what the industry is made up of, how we're having troubles getting more people into the industry, younger people. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear any any experiences that, that you've had that you'd like to share on that, Kat? Do you have? Sure. Um, I think I was really lucky and maybe luckier than most. But I, when I was, I can't remember how old I was, but when I was younger, uh, I moved to New York City to go work for Sapphire Marketing, which is owned by a really wonderful woman in our industry named Marla Suttenberg. And so when we talk about kind of like generational, uh, uh, I don't know, great word for that, but uh, she is a very big proponent of the industry and she mentored me on many other women. And I think that's kind of the answer to that question is, is when you, when you meet people and when new people do join our industry, making them feel as welcome as possible and being there to support them and kind of, you know, guide them along their path in any way that you can is very valuable. So I take a big sense of pride and that I'm, you know, able to do that for, for new people that come into our industry. And I think, I think, you know, maybe it's not the only answer, but it's a great answer. And and that's how I kind of 
felt comfortable to stay and learned more and grew more by having such strong women to be there to kind of guide me and, and show me what was possible. Yeah, that's re retention is the important thing there. And it's uh, which the reason we wanted to talk about generational diversity is everyone knows, okay, there's only less than 20% of women in all of the technology fields. We know that. But even worse than that is the fact that less than 14% of those, I think it's 7%, less than 7% are under the age of 40. So that means there's almost no young girls entering into any of those technology, AV or IT fields anymore. And so it's a little worrisome. And that's why we wanted to talk about generational diversity. We just already talked about the fact that there's no direct career path. So how do we get girls to fall into this industry and fall in love with it like we all did? Do you have any thoughts on that one, Bren? Yeah, well, I think the industry has a marketing problem, oh. right? Mm -hmm. I think it's a lot cooler than you think. And there's, there is a sort of legacy mindset that um, AV is like plumbing or carpentry, and it's sort of like mm -hmm. the dude's trade, trade. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's the dude's trade for a certain kind of nerd, mm -hmm. right? And with a lot of things where there's um, that sort of uh, mindset, there can be tribalism, and that tribalism will turn off someone who feels like they're not a part of the tribe. Um, I will never forget when I was a freshman in college, I got a, I grew up in Ohio and I had a scholarship from the East Ohio Gas Company. And I thought I was gonna be a chemical engineer, right? And my first summer I spent out in the field and it was great, you know, doing field research and, you know, um, testing and it was awesome. Next summer, I went into the office and the off, I would say the average age of the engineers in the office was probably 58, 59. You know what they were. I mean, it was prototypical, right? Men of European descent. And like, like Kat and Erica, I was the kind of person who, like when I got my first Mac, the first thing I did was take it apart. That was the first thing I did was take it apart and then put it back together. So I started learning how to code very early. For my first week there, they gave me an assignment and I was supposed to basically crunch some numbers. And, you know, I wrote a script and I had it done in two days. And the gentleman who I reported to was so angry because it was supposed to take me a month. <laughs> and, he didn't have any idea that I knew about databases or how to write, a, how to build a database, how to write a script and all that stuff. So I literally had it done in two days. The men in that office didn't talk to me for the rest of the summer. Oh no. Because they decided that what I was doing was going to disrupt their jobs and disrupt mm. the situation. And you know, I, there's a young female engineer that I know, she studied electrical engineering. 26, working at a firm right now, she had a similar experience with her college internship just four years ago, right? Wow. So part of it is there's, there is, I'm a believer in what Audre Lorde said, which is you can't take down the master's house using the tools that the master used to build it. Mm-hmm. 
So we as women in this field have to take different approaches than what the guys might do. And we have to really call them out and say that this, you can't look at the people who have been subjected to discrimination and say, oh, I'm so sorry, please figure out a way to fix it. <laughs> no, it's not, we're not the ones who need to fix it, right? And, and right. what we need to do though, is to keep reminding and stay in the face of those who are in the incumbency and let them know that they have to fix it. And it is mm -hmm. the onus is on them to fix it because the minute their fellow members of the tribe start to fix it and they start to attract great talent, those people are going to win because diversity in gender, in age, in, you know, nationality, in ability, all of those things make teams better. And we all know it. And we can, we can point mm -hmm. to this, the data all day long, we all know that it makes a difference. Just the same way we know that when women enter the C Street, profitability goes up. It's a fact. It's not a. It's not us trying to like create something. It, this is a fact. So, so I think just that knowing that women can come into this field at very di varying different points of entry. On the technical side, certainly, we have to stand up for each other. And also, we have to call out the people who make people feel isolated and recognize that if there's, if you know a woman who is the only woman on her team, if you know someone who is the only person under 30 on their team, reach out to them because chances are the people around them may not be doing that. And sometimes that phone call to say, I understand why you're so angry you want to cry, but you didn't want to cry in front of them because they think you were a little girl. You can have that conversation with me. And then that will hopefully help you to stay and fight it out because they want you to wear yourself out. They want you to decide you're too tired. You're not going to do it, you know, because people are always protecting their territory. And I find that women are less likely to try to protect our territory are more likely to say, come to my house, yeah. enjoy it with me. Let's, let's make our land bigger and better and more productive. And I have no reason to be afraid of you. Jen and I were talking about this earlier, um, uh, about how we have certainly, you know, our personalities are, are very much, you know, the more the merrier, the more we can actually get things done. Um, and then there comes times where, you're in these situations and you really have to learn how to speak up for yourself, even when you feel like you're, um, you're not in a position to speak, you know? And some of that is not even just speaking up for yourself, but speaking up for the other people around you and recognizing that that person needs help or needs to be spoken for as well. Or just needs a sounding bar board, like Bren was saying. Sometimes yeah. it's just, I can't find the comfort. I can't find the support where I am right now, but I want to stay in this industry. And yeah, I think that Bren's right. We have to reach out to people in organizations, even if their organization's not doing it. And I think maybe it's not just, it's not just within an organization, but it's us as an industry as a whole, because if you come into this industry as a young woman and like I was, I was the only woman on my team for years. 
Um, and so you don't see any, you know, you might feel a little isolated in that way. And then you look to the C-suite in your company and there's, there's no women there. So where are you going to go? And then you go to the trade shows and the only women you see are the booth babes. And then, so, so where in that, do you feel welcome or do you feel like there's a career path for you? Or do you feel like there's something more or, you know, somewhere for you to go or grow or develop? If you don't see those things, it's kind of, it's a little discouraging and it's easier. It's less easy to retain that young talent than it would be if there was, you know, if there were things that they saw that made them understand that there were possibilities. That goes back to also what we're doing with Rosie Riveters. You can't be what you don't see. Yep. That's the Sally yeah. ride. And, yeah. and the, the earliest opportunity we have to intervene and actually say, you know what, you, you can figure things out. You will build that confidence. You can do technical things and you belong in this space. I mean, that's the biggest impact that we're able to, you know, even just barely move that needle to get little girls to realize that that they belong before they get into the programming that's, you know, available in middle school and high school. It's not really available in elementary school either. So no. And what was it that we uh, read? I think the stat was seven years old girls lose their confidence or something like yep. something terrible there's like <laughs> they're so confident and then the difference from like five-year-olds to seven-year-olds is astounding in the things that they believe about themselves and the things that they actually see so if you ask a five-year-old child to draw a doctor like 70 percent of them are women if you ask a seven-year-old child to draw a doctor it's immediately reversed. 30% are women. Yeah. Same thing for scientists and astronauts, even, even lower for astronauts or anything related to like IT or networking or anything like that. Because they don't envision that as they're coming up in elementary school. Sorry. I, no, I thought I just when you brought up astronauts, my favorite like anecdote about like about diversity of thought and women in positions is when they were putting the first woman astronaut uh, into the space oh, station. Yes. Going, I know this yeah. one. Yeah. You know this one? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Tell, the, tell it. Fine. It's totally appropriate. This is a women in AV podcast. It's part of it. But they thought, yes. what was it that she needed? She needed 100 tampons for a week. And obviously yeah. you're limited to what you can bring up in space with you. I'm sure they could have used the extra space. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, maybe just asked. Yeah. Maybe, you know, yeah. Like, crazy. Yeah. crazy. Crazy. But yeah, that's, yeah. um, <laughs> that shows you when decisions are made, um, without considering when you can tell when a decision is made in the world we live in where there was no diversity yeah. when that decision was made. And that's one of the topics we were also were trying to explore was history is written by the victors. Um, our world was created by men. What do we do to make sure that in the future we're represented better, that we, we can't rewrite history, but I know that chat. Sure your... <laughs> yeah. Hey, friend, I like that. Maybe, maybe just sure we can. I mean, I think that we can revisit history. Mm -hmm. And we can reframe history and we can say you can see it through this lens, which was the one lens that was published in 1912, or you can mm -hmm. see it through these additional five lenses as well. I right. Like so yeah. I challenge that. I challenge that notion. I, hey, no, I like that. I didn't even think of it that way because you just kind of 
give up when you read a history book and you go, okay, well, I guess that's how that went and can't do anything about it now. But it's true. There's still the perspectives that were just silenced. Oh, a girl, one of my friends in the industry, Amanda Wallman, told me this story. And I think this is how things start to change. She was talking about when they were developing the technology for the, like, um, the video game with the hand motion, the gesturing, that the engineer sent it out for a beta test or an alpha test, and they sent it home with all of the uh, families of the people that worked there so that they, they and their kids could play with it and see if it worked before they mass produced it. And they took it home, and what they found was it didn't work for women and children. Because when the engineers did the programming for the product, they only did it for men's body types. And so, I mean, it's a video game. It's developed with children in mind. And they didn't even bother to test it for, you know, different sizes of people. So I think when you, when you, can, when you can get people to understand how important it is to have diversity of thought, whatever that looks like, um, because it has direct implications on their business and what they're trying to do. And, you know, for engineers, when they have to go back and redesign everything and the money and the investment that it takes to do those things because they didn't bother to think broadly in the beginning. I think once that happens, people start to realize that not only is change valuable just because it is, but it actually directs their you know investments, their return on investments, their bottom line, then things will start to change more. That's and I complete. think that we have to take charge of writing the present. Right. You know, and and women in this field should be bolder and we should try to take down firms that are competitors that are not, you know, that are not hiring a lot of women or don't have a lot of diversity. We should actively say, yeah, we're all in competition. I think that they're going to go out on their own if they don't ev eventually embrace diversity, because like we keep saying, the more diversity you have, the more profitable profitable you can be it's no longer just a guessing game that's a fact so mm -hmm. you're gonna get left behind if you don't start embracing diversity mm -hmm. and i and i think it's critical to you know i'm very i'm very competitive so i am one who would say if this if i see a a competitor and i know that they've had a long-standing relationship with some client but i want to work with that client I'm going to go to that client and say, I know that you two boys have been working together for a very long time and you have your shorthand and everything else, but I deserve a chance. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you can either give me the chance or someone else around you is going to give me the chance and you're the one who's going to be looking. And I'm not looking mm -hmm. to put you out by any stretch of the imagination, but recognize that if you don't give me the chance, someone else will. Because, yeah. frankly, I think I'm better than the other guy. You're going to write it in two <laughs> days instead of a month. <laughs> yes, and ha exactly. And having the mm -hmm. confidence to say, I'm better. I believe I'm better. And here's why. Here's what you will get from me. Here are the advantages of working with me or hiring me. And mm -hmm. not necessarily always looking at what the guys do, but just saying, here's what I do. And mm -hmm. I've tried to focus on people who want to work with me and not spend my energy on people who give me the runaround or give me bullshit, right? They don't want to work with me clearly if they're giving me the runaround or bullshit. So why should I, I'm not going to put my energy in trying to prove to them that they should. And I think that that's a big thing too, that we not waste our energy trying to convince people who are like, show me. 
Really? No. I'm not going to spend my time showing you. I'm going to spend my time doing it with people who are like, I can see you're qualified 5,000 times over. Let's just get started. Yeah. Empowered, empowered people empower people. Is that what it is? So it's like your clients are going to be the ones that win out. Hire someone that's empowering and there you go. Yeah, exactly. And let's worry less about who the victors were before, right? Because... You know, I know a few a few people who used to be, you know, in AV and then they decided they didn't want to learn Revit or they decided that, you know, someone else can do the networking. And guess what? They're not working in it anymore. They didn't want to diversify? <laughs> their own <Themselves>. thinking. <laughs> they didn't yeah. want to diversify their own thinking. Yeah. You know, the other thing I think, too, is that we, we it's, it's so crucial for us to really challenge each other as women technically. Because what mm -hmm. I've noticed is that men will just sort of say nothing when a woman gets something wrong. And instead of, you know, pulling aside and saying, hey, you know, you said this, but it really should be this, they'll say nothing and then deep six her in the background. You know, by going to other people and say, oh, yeah, I was in a meeting with her. She didn't know what she was talking about. She thought this was this. And so instead of helping and challenging that woman to technically get better, they use it to say to the guys in the background, oh, yeah, you don't want to deal with her. She doesn't know. And in terms of how we deal with each other, we have to be able and willing to accept the criticism from each other. And to do it in a way that helps people technically get better. <clears throat> I've met a few women in technical positions in the field who are qualified, actually. And it's, I don't think it's their fault. I think that they are often, there's often a situation where someone will say, oh, hire that woman. We need a woman on our team. And then if she's not quite up to it, instead of challenging her to be up to it, they sort of smooth the way, cover everything. Don't talk about it because, you know, that's the other thing. We like to talk about everything. They don't want to talk about anything, right? So we confront issues as women. We're direct. We have to sit and talk it through. They would rather say, oh, okay, well, somehow this is going to work itself out or we'll just let her fade out and then, you know, start diminishing their opportunities. And I just think it's critically important that we can accept, we can accept feedback from others that we give it, and that we strive to be technically the best that we can possibly be. So, so I'd like to, to close with a, a question because you brought a good, a good point that we need to be open and receptive to that feedback also. How can we position that in a way, like if you had to go to somebody and say, I want to help you with this, but they're not open to it, how would you actually ask them that question? What's like one, one thing we can take away from this of like something that's repeatable? If they appear like they don't, they don't want help is the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would not, I would start off by not even talking about what the work is. I would, I would do something like, you know, let's go bowling. Do you want to go? Would you go bowling with me? You know, mm -hmm. and while we're sitting there, after we roll the balls, while we're sitting there, just say, you know, how's it going? What are you working on? Are you having any yeah. challenges? You know, and don't be afraid to tell yeah. me. And here's the biggest up of my life.
And here's the second mm -hmm. biggest of my life. And here's the time when I, you know, uh, you know, specified the wrong sound system and it flown four bands in from the UK and they all sounded like crap and everybody hated me. <laughs> and just let them see that I made those mistakes and I was, and I'm vulnerable enough that I can share that and share how to grow from that mistake mm -hmm. and hope that that sort of presenting myself as someone who I acknowledge my mistakes, I can talk about them and I learn from them and move on might help them open up a little bit, you know, and sometimes it's a process. Sometimes you just have to get to know a person and keep having conversations, keep pulling them out. And then they realize they can trust you because mm -hmm. it, it's, it's easy if you're a woman or a person who is, you're the only one or you're one of two quote, like you, it's easy that when things get difficult to just shell because that's the safest place to be. And if you don't say, then no one can ever really have an opinion about it. And so I think it just takes time sometimes to pull someone out of that shelling mode that they've gotten in mm -hmm. to protect themselves, you know, from things direct and indirect. So that's what I would do. I think to your point, what you said, there's a lot of things that you don't learn in school that don't prepare you for the workforce. And one of those is being able to admit your mistakes and your failures and recognize those and learn and grow from them. But there are other things that I think affect not just women, but everyone in the workplace that no one teaches you about that, you know, not everything's about you. That if, you know, if a job's not working out or you want to leave or you don't get a promotion or somebody else says, sometimes it's not about you, that your boss has an agenda as well. The corporation has an agenda as well, not to internalize and take things personally. You know, there's a lot of little tricks to being in the workforce that no one prepares you for. Um, and I think a lot of that we can share with the next generation and kind of give them a little more confidence because I think we all internally, the first time something goes wrong or goes bad, has an immediate reaction uh, and that can stay with you for years. So yeah, hundred percent. So I think <laughs> yeah. we've all been there. So I think, yeah. you know, preparing people to, uh, to understand and put things in the right perspective and the right frame um, can really help somebody. Cause if you can overcome those things really early, it sets you up for success later in your career. And it helps them develop their sense of agency, right? 100%. Absolutely. So that they know I can speak up for myself. I'm entitled. I can say these things. I can ask for what I need. I don't have to wait for someone to ask me what I need. I can ask for what I need. And I deserve the things that I think I need. Yeah, I think that's the hardest thing for women to do is because, I mean, I think you're, you're taught, you know, when you're younger that to be polite and to be kind and to be nice. And that's what we're taught. Quiet. Uh, and quiet and be seen and not heard and all of those things that, you, you know, you, you grow up doing and young men are taught how to shake hands. Young women are not there. You know, there's not a lot of, of preparation for navigation of this world. And so the earlier that you can learn those things and learn your confidence and learn that every business relationship is just like a personal relationship. When something's not right, having the confidence to walk away and move on, surround yourself with the people that, you know, have the same goals, the same ambitions, the same work ethic that you do, all of those things matter. And no one teaches you that. So the more we can share that kind of institutional knowledge, I think the better we'll all be. I absolutely agree with both of you on that one. And I 
always tell, I wish I could, I know, I can't go back in time. You can maybe rewrite history according to Bren, but you can't go back in time. I know that. And uh, I wish I could tell my younger self, just don't be afraid to ask questions and be vulnerable because it will end up helping you so much. Because I just came into this industry so defensive, like I'm the woman, so I have to be smarter than everyone. I have to know what I'm talking about. So if I ask a question, they're going to think I'm dumb. So I just wish I knew that asking questions is actually going to make me smarter, crazy enough as it is. And also not being afraid to ask multiple questions, yes. because I know when I was still learning, there was, I was like an information overload. And I was so grateful to anybody who I was like, can I just ask you this one more time? Yeah. <laughs> That's so huge. And I encounter so many young women who think they can't say, I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Because for them to say, I don't know, puts them in their mind in a vulnerable position. And I, you know, I'm all the time like, I don't know, let's figure it out. Like, here's what I do know. I don't know about that. So let's just talk it through. And it doesn't make me weaker to say that I don't know. Right. It makes me stronger to acknowledge and understand how much I don't know. Absolutely. Thank you, ladies, for this amazing conversation. Great. I'm sad that it's so much. So I bad. know. I could do this all day. <laughs> to, like, you know, do this again at Infocom or something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Kat, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at Mercive, but uh, people can find me on my website, which is cat at catwheeler.com or buy my books on Amazon. They're there for sale. They're awesome. You should, you should buy them. They're about the industry. I agree. That's and my plug. It's also a female lead character, and she's awesome. And she talks about the boys' club of the AV industry and dealing with that. And it, it's an awesome book. Yeah, both of them. Nice, nice. Agreed. Bren, where can people find you? They can find me, Bren, at Kierkegaard.com, uh, on LinkedIn, Brenda J. Walker. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Erica. Again. Okay. <laughs>